0: Michelle, how are you today? Oh, I'm very
1: delighted to be here. Thanks so so much for having me on.
0: Ah, well, Michelle, I'm actually, for very personal reasons, I'm very excited to have you on and to find out more about your story, what you're doing now and how you got there, uh, because the little that I know is very intriguing and I think um, can really have a big impact on a lot of people. So I'm excited to to find out more. Great. (laughs) So why don't we start with you just sharing what is it that you used to do when I guess you used your old profession, what did you used to do for work?
1: So I worked for the Victorian Public Service and the Queensland Public Service over a, the course of 20 years. Oh, wow. Uh, in a whole lot of portfolios from education, women's policy and health um, including bioethics, etc. Mm-hmm. So that was my profession and I started full-time but during the course of that career with my first business, I went part-time.
0: Right. So 20 years in, is it fair to say you would describe the various roles that you had, they were government, administration sort of roles? Yeah,
1: mostly policy um, and program management. Yep. Yeah. In Queensland, I was involved in, we didn't have a prep year when I first started in government. So my first job as a graduate was to work on how we would implement a prep year in Queensland. Um, And that's just normal now. So they're really big, long term projects. And they're the type of projects I've enjoyed working on. So I specialised. In a, in a election commitments, implementing election commitments
0: is my specialty. Wowzers, that sounds very important and grown up. Okay, well, <laughs>
1: um, it's an office, so you know, in there are professional ways of working in offices. There, as we all know, there are also ways in which you get just different types of personalities (laughs) and I think that in all offices there are days where the office feels like adult daycare and there are days (laughs) where it feels like you know you're really flying high and achieving a lot and that's just a normal experience I think for everybody.
0: Yes that's probably true yes and so you did that for 20 years in in various different roles and, and capacities but what is it that you do now?
1: So now I'm an authentic relationship coach, so really helping women be able to say what they need and ask for what they want in their intimate relationships, in their family dynamics where that can be quite tricky and also authenticity at work. What does that look like and how can we have a a real conversation about power dynamics in offices? That's one part of what I do. And the second part of what I do is I'm a survivorship coach, which is helping women recovering from life-threatening illness or women living with chronic illness to really be able to live in a way that works for them and have a sense of fullness and happiness in their life while they are also managing potentially chronic pain Or just that transition back from really significant illnesses such as cancer and then how do you transition out of that experience that's been so intense into resetting your family roles, Mm. into returning to work. So all of that work um, is my focus and a lot of the survivorship work is obviously relationship
0: work. Yes. So they're
1: quite intertwined.
0: Yes, and it's interesting because as you were describing those sort of, I guess, two realms of the work that you do, it was occurring to me about the, you know, the significant um, overlap between, you know, what I imagine are, are some of the the conversations and the skills that you would be um, helping to develop and highlight with the different clients that you're working with. So although I guess there are two different parts of the puzzle. I can sort of start to see how, you know, there's some probably some common threads at the back end.
1: Yeah, the really key focus for me is supporting and helping women to stand in our own mature femininity. Mm -hmm. So we live in a culture um, where, in my sort of language, we're very validated if we stay in our maiden we're you know seductive and that can be across a whole range of cultural aspects about what that looks like Mm -hmm. but we don't live in a culture that really facilitates and enables women to mature in life and to mature their feminine power in life And that is the core focus of my work. What does mature feminine power look like for you at any age? And that's actually your own personal creative journey.
0: Wowzers. There's so much about that that I'm very intrigued about. So I can't wait to get to find out more and to get into this conversation. But my first question is, how do you go from a government role? How do you go from... That kind of work, into this very deep, different work. How what was going on that prompted you to make the change? There's a couple of traits for that.
1: Uh, firstly, are uh, my academic backgrounds actually in philosophy, mm-hmm. and I went to uni at 26 after working uh, in the financial realm, and I was just fascinated and excited to learn about the very deep question of what is a good life and what is a good life for me. And I've really harnessed that question which in many ways enables me to ask questions about status and money and consumerism and really sends me back to myself of what what is actually what I want in a life for myself mm-hmm. and not being so attached to the external world as giving me self-esteem. Self-esteem is actually self-esteem. It's not other-esteem or <laughs> yes. consumer-esteem. So Such a good,
0: good distinction. <laughs>
1: well, that, that started in my 20s, that conversation. In my 30s, I was in government. I was working for the Department of Premier and Cabinet in Victoria in social policies, so very significant portfolios around health and education. Mm-hmm. And I was looking up the line and thinking, you know, these executives don't seem to have a lot of control over their diary. I seem to have a lot more control over my day in yes. some ways than I do. And the stress of that life was just not interesting to me. I just I couldn't work out uh, how I... Could ever enjoy that process. Mm-hmm. So I started to negotiate going part time, and I did that in a very lockstep way. First of all, I um, took purchase leave, which a lot of people might have in their organisation, where you have more rec leave for less salary, but okay. it's spread over. After that, I transitioned into actual permanent part time. At four days a week and then I transitioned to three days a week so as that process evolved over about three or four years uh, I ended up working in the department of health and then I had a very significant life experience at 35 I had just dark circles under my eyes and I'm my vanity was very attached to it was triggered so I went to the GP and she sent me for a series of tests and that evolved into about a five or six month process of diagnostics where I discovered that I had an autoimmune condition that was affecting my liver it's it's very rare but a protein in my blood attacks my liver cells as if it's an organ transplant and untreated it leads to cirrhosis, so it scars your liver Mm -hmm. and that then leads to organ failure. So at 35 I had a very confronting conversation with death and that question of, okay, what is the good life turned into, okay, what's the good death look like? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the prognosis untreated was about five years. The treatment actually had me sleep 18 hours out of 24 hours a day And that was just completely unsustainable for me. Yeah. And without treatment, I felt really well. So the juxtaposition of, okay, this will enable me to live longer, however, it's rubbish the way Mm. I'm living. Yes. And I feel so much better and so alive. I can do yoga. I can go to dance class. You know, I've just energised and fit without treatment. So in the end, I decided I would take the five years uh, to 40 and went through a round of
0: doctors and processes, but that was my
1: decision. So,
0: so I can I just jump in and check? So you've you've had this symptom that led you to just go to a GP to say what's going on here and, you know, is there a cream I can put on it or is there, you know, something yeah. or whatever, and then it has uncovered this far more far-reaching situation and then all of a sudden, well, over time, as you said, five or six months of diagnosis, you're then suddenly told, here's your situation, here's the treatment. You take the treatment and it's really not really sustainable in terms of living a life, but that will keep, yep. keep you alive longer. But you're asleep for 18 hours of every 24. Yep. Or, or you say no to the treatment you actually feel a bit better and can go about your, your day-to-day and do the things that you enjoy doing, but you're likely to die in the next five years. Yes, your life likely to have extremely
1: serious uh, liver damage within mm-hmm. that five years mm-hmm. uh, that is irreversible, mm-hmm. uh, and that leads to organ failure. Um, and the, the trick about all of that is, okay, well, could you just have an organ transplant? Not exactly, because it turns out that the treatment for the organ transplant is the treatment they're giving me for the autoimmune condition already, because
0: my organ, my body thinks my liver is already a transplant. Right. So it really sounds like you're in one of those scenario games that people play of, would you rather, and it's you have to choose between two really terrible things.
1: Yeah, I think... Being trained in philosophy enabled me to find a way to meet the situation and to think about what's really important for me. Mm. I then started, I took up a very serious practice of meditation. Yeah. And I studied Buddhism uh, more deeply than I had previously as a philosophy of living. Yeah. Which is a philosophy about meeting reality as it is. Yeah. So that held me as a container and in that process I started running public philosophy events in Melbourne uh, with lead philosophers from Australia and overseas and that gave me the sense of community in terms of my creativity was being expressed in the world in a way that felt really nourishing for me Mm -hmm. and I had stable employment through government uh, and was able, without taking treatment, to you know function quite well in an office.
0: So this at this time you were st- doing part time work still with the government, is that right? Yeah. yeah. That's okay. Okay. Great. So uh, you're you're balancing these two worlds. Yes, mm. I was
1: already bouncing, and you had to bounce two things, <laughs> um, which I've done all my life. Uh, and then what happened is that over time. I moved to a, a public hospital where it was really the specialty around liver transplants, mm-hmm. and I agreed with my specialist at that time that obviously I was getting closer uh, to timelines here. Um, I was starting to feel fatigued. Uh, we tried another couple of drugs, same result, uh, not great quality of life, and I decided I'd go off and try Chinese medicine Mm -hmm. and I tried that and it had some results but it wasn't fast enough and there came a day where my specialist looked at me and said you do not leave this hospital without treatment today and that was the moment I had agreed with him when he said I absolutely have to have treatment that I would take the treatment right Uh, and I was right on the edge of my liver, in his words, looked like a bomb had gone off in it. Mm. Um, it's scarred. I had it wasn't irreversible at that point, but we were right on the edge. It was six months before it would be irreversible damage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I sat down and said, "Okay, right today, I take the treatment." And it turned out in that period of time, a new drug that had been produced for cancer treatment was available for select cases that did the traditional treatment for autoimmune didn't work for. And I was sort of bedbound in very intense treatment for many months. And then as we came off a steroid that was um, decreasing the inflammation in my liver, I felt better and the cancer drug worked for me. Wow. So I got quality of life back and I'm still on it. Like it's a lifetime drug for me. And I'm able to do everything that I wanted to do. Uh, And what happened in that process is I built an internal map for myself of the emotional journey I was in, Read Mythology, to have a way of understanding this threshold between life and death. Hmm.
0: Well, firstly... (laughs) congratulations and it's fantastic that you were able to try that new drug and that it has actually worked for you and I guess one of the takeouts is the importance of trusting yourself in what's right for you and that for you you made the choice of resisting treatment to a point and then as you got new information it's like okay now I now need to make the decision based on the information I have at this moment uh, and for you that 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 obviously opened up a whole new opportunity with that new drug being available.
1: yeah, and I think if that drug had been available at thirty five that my body would have been fine in that process. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's two things for people having this experience, and it's not a novel experience. One is we can have a wall about refusing to take treatment, which is different to experimenting and trying treatment. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely encourage people to experiment and try treatment. The treatment that I had in 2012 when the liver was critical like this at the moment, that treatment sucked. Mm-hmm. But there was no question at that point that I had to do that because dying of organ failure was not something I was keen to do. Yes. So that treatment sucked and I didn't know I would feel better. It was a process of I started to feel better. Mm -hmm. So there is an individual conversation with yourself and I wouldn't say blindly resist treatment. Like your specialist actually went to medical school. Yeah. I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I saw my specialist as If I am the decision-maker in this experience, so I like to think of it as I'm the queen of my land, like as an archetype, I'm a queen in this situation. My specialist is the commander of the forces. Mm -hmm. He's there standing guard at the war and he is the assessor of the threat.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He comes and gives me the advice, the expert advice, From the front line with the expertise, Mm -hmm. with all of his expertise, and I am the decision maker in response to that. And that is a way to engage with this conversation without flitting from complete dependency to complete resistance. Michelle,
0: I love that analogy, and I am very much thinking there's someone in my personal life who is in a fairly dire medical situation and I'm, I guess, watching and having to be on the fringes and seeing what her experience is and the challenge of balancing, well, who am I listening to? How am I making the right decision? And so I think that analogy is a really powerful one because you're not uh, kind of collapsing into helplessness And you're also not just putting your stake in the ground and saying, no, you know, you shall not pass. This is not going to happen. I actually really love that analogy. So I will definitely be sharing that with her. Yeah, there's a whole lot of videos
1: on my website as well, where I've very short clips, but talk about how to manage people's expectations. Um, What does it look like in this experience of illness? Mm -hmm to understand that it can actually be a very deeply empowering experience the reality is you're in it so yes victim there is definitely a day or a month or a year for victim party i fully support the
0: victim party <laughs> get in there have because a good,
1: yes you feel victimized like
0: mm-hmm.
1: what the hell is happening here yes and there are other options as well you don't need to get in the victim process
0: feeling that's your only way to navigate the experience yeah yeah and not to uh, downplay the significance of what you've been through and and certainly that others and potentially someone listening to this you know could be going through there's part of me too that's overlaying your approach here in a similar way that when people are in a work situation, and they're feeling stuck, there can be that tendency of different approaches. And one is the victim approach of I'm stuck here, I can't change, I'm too old to make a change, or I don't know exactly what I want to do next, or I don't have the money, or whatever the the run of stories are that people will tell themselves that keep them stuck in a work situation that isn't serving them anymore. And I think that there's something to be said for taking that empowered position of, okay, I may not know all the answers, but I'm going to experiment. I'm going to try a certain thing. I'm going to be curious about this and I'm going to be in the driver's seat rather than just collapsing into despair or um, taking a rash uh, approach of like, I'm just going to quit my job today with no plan. So I, I think because, you know, part of what this interview series is really about is for, for women that are in that situation to empower them and I so I guess I can't help but see some of the overlay around the choice of how you approach a significant pivot point transition time in your life and obviously your your situation and what you're describing is very much driven by health reality and sometimes that is how it plays out for people that there are health concerns that get to a point where it means your work life isn't sustainable in the same way anymore. And for other people that don't have that um, as the, the universal boot, the catalyst, uh, I think they can still benefit from some of the, the messages that I'm hearing from you. Well, certainly the
1: situation you're describing of feeling stuck and in survival mode uh, was my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recovered uh, from the intense treatment I went back to work at five hours a week um, mm. and it took about two years for me to have full recovery and a functionality at the office. Wow. Yeah. And because the autoimmune condition cannot be cured, it can only be managed. We try to drop a drug dose and then the the results say, you know, you're at risk again. So mm-hmm. then you are up the drug dose. So that toing and fro your very being of your health also has a mental uh, and emotional experience particularly at the office Mm -hmm. and no matter what the circumstance whether you're getting divorced whether uh, your child is struggling at school whether or not you're caring for older parents all of those aspects of life can feel like they're infiltrating or compromising you in your very professional role. Mm. I would actually say that we've got a huge split in our culture around work and what's available and can be seen in the office face and what is going on in our real lives. What I did through this process was deeply work with authenticity Mm -hmm. so that I could still take this stance of I'm engaged in meaningful employment. And the important thing to remember here is I am the owner of my resources. I am the owner of my time, my creativity, my intellect, my emotional intelligence.
0: Yeah.
1: These are not owned by the organisation. I am the holder of those resources. So, once again, the queen archetype is helpful because she is responsible for the well being of her land yes. emotionally, physically, mentally, etc., and financially. Mm. So, from that position, all the ups and downs and the power dynamics of the office, this Notion of holding your own autonomous maturity actually can, well, firstly, you're less interested in what I think is very teenage, gossipy, power play <laughs> dynamics yes. at the office. Yes, And you sort of go, actually, I, I'm centred. Most people at the office are not centred. Mm. So a meditation practice, a yoga practice, taking time to journal every day, and seeing yourself as the holder of your resources and your self-esteem makes the office environment a bit different for you and your experience.
0: Yes. And I would really uh, agree with, uh, from my own experience, if not all the other uh, research and evidence that, that's out there, the, the impact and the benefit of developing a regular meditation practice in terms of its ability to allow me uh, from my point of view to not be as buffeted around by external factors and I'm not saying that it's easy especially when no. you're a high achiever and you're a busy-minded person the thought of uh, meditating certainly for me in the early days was like what how am I that this is not going to happen however You know, really, I'm now sort of five years down the track uh, from my first real introduction and developing a regular meditation practice. And I am still blown away at the, the impact that when I actually notice how I respond in certain situations so differently now compared to the me that I know I was previously in terms of the level of reactivity and getting caught up in all of that external drama and forgetting that, well, actually, this is me. This is, you know, who I am. And I do have an element of influence over what I do in this situation or don't do. And so I think of meditation as a highly under uh, appreciated tool that can benefit in so many different aspects of your life. And I know that there's lots of people that are going, oh, everyone's on the meditation bandwagon. And, I, you know, I can agree there's obviously lots of people that are campaigning and talking about meditation as the be-all and end-all. I don't think it's the be-all and end-all, but I think it is an amazing resource to have in your toolkit.
1: I think for me it's after 15 years now of practice. Um, there are there have been times where I didn't have it regularly. There mm. are times when I do uh, I think once you learn the skill, it is definitely my go-to resource. If I haven't been meditating regularly but have a really rubbish day, yeah, it's the absolute resource to recenter me. One of the things I think is important to perhaps you know explore a little if you're in that situation of feeling trapped or imprisoned in your job, or feeling you've got a bully um, above you. Mm-hmm. Or you've got uh, recalcitrant staff, you know, that you're managing. But one of the things I think can be useful is I built this meditation practice. Then what I did was I emailed a number of people in my network at the office and I started to run free meditation classes at lunchtime Mm -hmm. for the department. Mm -hmm. Didn't ask for permission from anybody, just (laughs) hired a training room, the same as you'd book a room for a meeting, set it up. uh, And I trained about two and a half thousand people over that period of time in meditation. That is fantastic. So what that shows is the resources that you're using externally you can more authentically move into the office space that you're in through simply offering that or finding a way that it's available to others. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't get attached to how many people came. I didn't uh, tout myself in any way. I simply sent an email which said, if anybody's interested in learning meditation, I'm going to run a four-week series at the office at lunchtime, you know, on Tuesdays, 12.30. Yep. Uh, The facilitator skills that I already had from running philosophy events for the public and a whole range of background skills just enabled that to be really easy. Yeah. And many, many years later people still email me and ask me, are you running that meditation
0: series? Wow. Uh, Which I'm not. Uh, but it shows the impact that you had
1: and it shows that I'm the owner of my resource Mm -hmm. these are actually my resources and I can share them as I wish to yeah and all of that process helped me have an authentic identity in the office dynamic on the worst possible days where your job feels soul-crushing If you head off for 45 minutes to host other people who may be feeling their jobs are soul crushing (laughs) and have such a beautiful engagement of people discovering something new in themselves, you're sitting in circle, whatever level you are at, then that contextualized and framed my day experience, even on days that I was struggling with power dynamics.
0: Yes, that is still there and outside of your control i love the fact that you've shared there about your use of existing and transferable skills that are just being channeled in a different direction yeah and i think that that's something again about uh, coming back to your analogy of you know being the owner of your resources of the benefit of doing some kind of a review or reflection or a stock take of, well, what are the the resources that I do have? What are the the skills and, and um, attributes that I have that are mine that I can choose to use in whatever way or direction that I want? Because I think in, especially if someone is feeling a little trapped in a situation, one of the things that can help open up a sense of choice is to realise the skills that are there, that are yours, that can be used and channeled and directed in a, a different way in the future, because then you can start to open up. Oh, well, actually, I could. This would help me with that, or uh, this skill that I had could also be used in this industry or in this way, or to help this person. And I think that's that can be a really good starting point for people to sort of start to look at what are those resources and how else could they be used in a way that feels meaningful.
1: And creatively expressed because Mm. when you're in your creative flow, you naturally feel good about self. Mm. Uh, We all know that project or that experience we had where we lost sight of time. Uh, It could be curating your Instagram feed. It could be reading a book. uh, It could be working on a project that you really enjoyed and suddenly you realise actually you've been on your computer for three hours engaged uh, and that's a sense of you've got creative flow. The other aspect in that is to share your gifts. You don't need to be stifled by your job title in order to share your gifts. You can share your gifts and have that experience of expressing yourself and learning more about that skill because you will learn and develop your skill in the process of sharing your skills.
0: Yes, and what I love about that is aside from the fact of, you know, not trying to wait for permission, it's also not waiting for things to be exactly perfect either. That sometimes uh, you know, we can be so caught up in, oh, well actually I have to have a proper room and I have to really have every element of this mapped out of exactly how it's going to go and I need to have a proper Logo and like all these things that that yeah. we, we can tell ourselves. When actually it's like, well, actually, what's the simplest way of just actually expressing this, sharing this, knowing that exactly as you just said, you will learn as you take the action, as you do it, as well as developing the skill. And so, I'm definitely a fan of encouraging people to look for those uh, small steps, that low-hanging fruit of an opportunity to explore uh, these different expressions of self and what they might open up because you know we often we don't know exactly what the next perfect correct career is going to be we don't know we want we want, we we want to know <laughs> <laughs> I know and this we don't know but we want to know before we take an action and so i I really want to try and encourage people to flip that and go well actually just accept that you don't know you won't know but what you do know is uh, the gifts that you have and what energizes you and what sparks you and where you get into that sense of flow and what others benefit from and so how can you just start to do a little bit more of that and see what comes of it and i know that it can be scary so for you then you've got all of this going on and then you've how do you then get into the work that you're doing now how did you start to promote or offer that
1: so I was constantly being asked for advice and counselling around relationships Okay. Uh, and felt um, that that was draining my energy yeah. uh, and I was sort of giving without a great boundary for my own self-care because I had this wisdom that people would ask me at the photocopy or something and I would just say a sentence uh, and then they'd stop and go, what, and want to <laughs> know more. Mm-hmm. Um So what I did was realise that the emotional map of recovery that I had built for myself, these four stages that I had intuitively noticed and inquired about in myself of when you're having treatment and diagnosis, in that situation for myself, I asked myself, what does this feel like? Like what is the image or what does it feel like? And it felt like being in a small rowboat with maybe an oar in the middle of the ocean. I couldn't see land. I'm sort of in a boat so I'm not completely drowning. But there's nobody here. I have no idea where anything is. I have no idea if I'll ever reach land. That's what it felt like. Hmm. And then as I transitioned and the treatment worked and I started to feel better, I felt like I was washed up on the beach. It's like, okay, I've reached land. I'm exhausted from the journey of being at sea, but I've got some capacity to breathe and just rest here yeah. on the beach. Even though you've collapsed, you are there. You can. <laughs> I've reached land. So um, I haven't died. I've reached land. The next stage I found was I started to feel a bit better. I started to return to the office. I started to have some energy instead of feeling 100% fatigued all of the time. I could go to some friends' events but not, you know, big events. And I found for myself it felt like I was sort of walking through a rainforest or a stream, like it was lush and it was green and it was contained. I wasn't Mm -hmm. climbing a mountain. But I could see some greenery, some connection, some nourishment for myself. And I was just pottering along through the forest. The final stage felt like I crested a hill and I could see the capacity to have a future and I felt like I could see the village. And for me, from mythology, uh, from a whole range of our ancestral stories, this is a sense of returning to tribe. Mm -hmm. When you return to tribe, you bring all of the depth and gifts of your experience back to the tribe to share. And we all do this. If you've had divorce, you bring back the gifts of what you learn through divorce when somebody else is struggling in relationship. So this was my map. What I did with that map was start to coach women privately through that journey. Mm -hmm. I found that women who had breast cancer, women who had chronic fatigue, whatever the experience of chronic illness or life-threatening illness the map made sense to them yeah now as anybody who's unwell knows this is not a linear process yeah one wrong blood test one scan yes. one uncertainty one fear of recurrence and you are back out at sea faster than you could ever imagine mm. so the map enables you to harness what your capacities are at that stage. And so I have this list of skills, this deepening of what that experience is like. Mm -hmm. And that is how I moved into coaching women individually, running workshops, uh, running workshops at not-for-profits in Melbourne who deal with cancer, having women referred to me who have multiple sclerosis, I'm currently beta testing uh, an online course for mm-hmm, women. Mm-hmm. So that's how I made the transition is I realised I had all of these resources, I started to develop some income, I was able to build up some savings and then I left my job and I'm still in that process of, okay, I've left the job Uh I've got you know enough savings for a longer period of time, but this is I'm in this risk now of expanding and sharing the work for it to become more and more sustainable for me mm-hmm. and reach more and more women.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you took the, I guess the side gig approach of having uh, the the familiarity of the part-time work still ticking over whilst you were exploring. Uh, and starting to offer this coaching work and starting to see how your particular framework was, was, was working, the word was starting to spread about what you were doing and then you transitioned over once you felt confident enough that the, the business was going to be the path you wanted to go on in a more of a, um, a, a singular focus.
1: Yeah, I spent four years working on it uh, part time, you know, yep. so working at the office three days a week and then having coaching sessions, Thursdays and Fridays and Saturday mornings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also did what I think many of us do. We get very, very shy about our gifts. Um, <laughs> there are people that we would like to speak to, but it's very intimidating and um, So my beloved partner said to me three years ago, you should get on podcasts. This is how you can share this message and what you have to share is really important. And I started speaking to podcasters like July last year. So about two and a half years later, I took up that um, advice (laughs) and implemented it. Uh, The same for -for not-for-profits. I would phone uh the think pink foundation which is here in melbourne for women recovering from breast cancer Mm -hmm. it took me six months to actually phone them and do a cold call
0: oh my goodness
1: and they were so excited we set up a meeting
0: (laughs) six months you waited and they they were falling over themselves with excitement when you did they did
1: and (laughs) i've had that experience all the way along Um, So I'd phone one and do something with them and then it took me another six months to phone the next one. So once I had that experience and the confidence started to build of, okay, this is really useful, this is a real thing, I've run workshops for 15 women now, Um, I've got hospitals interested in running this workshop as a four-part series which is how it's built because it's Mm -hmm. built around the four stages now uh, that are going to fund it for me to go in and run it at hospitals, So that started to give me confidence. Right. I still wasn't quite yet ready to take the leap. So the thing that I did when I'd reached that point of thinking, okay, I think I've really got something here, is I, through a friend of a friend, found an amazing business coach. Mm-hmm. In that process, I realised, what are we all doing when we're sick? We're Googling. Yes. So, yes, I could go and do things at hospitals. That's that's definitely one part of the business. But I found a way that actually online group work with the idea to launch digitally
0: so that everybody can access it. Yeah, fantastic. And what I love about that is a couple of things. One is that you reached out to get some support and training to help you from a business view. And this is something that I think, uh, again, is so important for us to realise that it's okay that you don't have all the answers yet and that you also don't have to struggle and figure them all out on your own, that there are uh, resources out there, people out there that can actually help guide you with your expertise and your your gifts to help bring this to the world and to seek out whatever version of support works for you. Some people love um the private one-on-one coaching some people love getting together for face-to-face workshops and training some people like the ongoing group stuff some people like the online and the flexibility whatever your flavor is at least start to explore i think you know what's out there to help you kind of catalyze you know your your next evolution so one is like being able to seek out the support that's going to help you keep moving and the second thing is that you were open to changing what you were offering to really suit your intended audience and not just, I guess, being um, so fixed in your thinking of, well, I've developed this four-week in-person offering and that's what I'm going to do, that you actually started to look at things from the perspective of the audience who you want to reach and impact and were flexible about, uh, shifting that I think that's fantastic.
1: The other thing I did was go do a whole lot of professional development in the sector. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I had something unique because that transition from the hospital door inverted commas back to life <laughs> yes. um, is a completely unserviced need in the sector. It's it's absolutely unserviced. And it's the part where women can really struggle financially and emotionally because all of that regular process of being a patient starts to fall away. Mm. Family and friends are like, oh, the crisis is finished, great. You're all better now. And it can be a very deeply lonely time. Mm. The cancer world is realising that actually women are surviving, well, all people are surviving cancer much longer now and You have a million people in Australia surviving cancer and it's going to be now seen as a chronic illness. That sector-wide transition that the industry is going through has thrown up a whole lot of professional development opportunities for Mm. people to train allied health people to start to take on this surviving cohort that we're all in. Yeah. So, I went and spent a year doing professional development with clinicians to learn more about what's really going on at the coalface. Mm. How and was that? That, well, I was the only non clinician in the room, so I had to get used to being that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it took me about six months to sort of realize oh, what I'm doing is survivorship coaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of people in America who do it. There's nobody in Australia that does it. Uh, so when I would say I was a survivorship coach, then everybody would look confused or curious <laughs> yes. what's that. So you have to be unafraid to put your stake in the ground and say, actually, that's what I'm doing. What I have is valuable. My qualification is that I'm not a clinician I have a deep understanding of the health sector. I'm trained around survivorship uh, programs and capacities the same way that other clinicians are because I'm taking the same training that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And my lived experience is a very powerful offering to others
0: totally because would you rather have a conversation with a clinician that's talking about theory or would you rather be connected with someone who's actually lived through it and i know which i would choose every day of the week
1: and i'm complimentary to your clinical aspect but i have psychologists refer to me because my work is practically focused Mm -hmm. how do you have the conversation with hr how do you go on a date after breast cancer? What do you say and to whom? Mm. What do you share with colleagues? What don't you share with colleagues? And all of this healthy, authentic, boundary, sovereign experience of maturing your feminine
0: whole self. Mm. And so it comes back, you know, again, full circle to that mission that you are on through all the various parts of what your work is around empower, empowering and creating that mature femininity and how to express that at any age. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Uh, Michelle, I think that it's very exciting to me the work that you are doing and I have no doubt that there are many challenges that um, you have faced and will continue to face in terms of how you communicate you know, what and even the languaging question that you just brought up, how you refer to what it is that you do and that may evolve over time. And I just want to really commend you for putting your stake in the ground and saying, well, there's no one else in Australia doing it. There is a massive need and a, and a gap in the, this area and I'm going to go out and I'm going to create something and I'm very excited to see how you continue to grow and get this message and support out there for all of these people that so desperately need it if people want to find out more about you and connect with you where where should they go so my
1: website is Mm michelleirving.com.au so people can find um, a whole lot of resources there including very short clips for people recovering from illness as well as many videos around relationships and intimacy and dating and relating they'll also find me on instagram at Michelle Irving Melbourne, but do get in touch by phone or email or send me a message on Instagram because in that way we'll be able to directly connect.
0: Yes, and then you can direct them to either whatever resources already exist or what the opportunities might be that are a fit for uh, who they are and what they're looking for. And we will make sure that we include those links into the show notes. Uh, So, Michelle. Mindful of time, and and uh, just want to ask you: Are there any other thoughts or tips that you would offer for people that are perhaps in that situation of whether it's health related that is part of the challenge or, or otherwise that are considering, you know, looking at what is the next phase of work life for me? What does that look like, and how do I get started? And they're a bit, you know, either confused or overwhelmed or unsure. Any other tips that you would like to share with them now that you're on the other side of this change?
1: I think for anybody that question of what is the good life, Mm. um, I think that in our culture we have an idea that escapism is the good life, being able to escape life. Yes. Uh, But your creativity is in your heart for a reason. Your dreams are not idle. They're not something to be diminished they are there as guidance for you and i think getting some support uh there'll be a lot of people want to offer advice whether <laughs> it's too risky how are you going to pay for it or you should do this this and this yes it's no actual practical you know experience or process like I think it's important to work with people whom you respect and who have done the work that you are looking to do. Mm. They don't have to be in the same sector, but they have made the transitions that you are interested in. And for me, you know, I've done that all the way along, even though I've started something brand new, which is exactly what I did with philosophy. I started something brand new. But there are a lot of women out there who know how to build businesses And follow them, Uh, use their resources that are available free. If you feel ready and connected to them, inquire about their programs. Start on a small program before you take the full financial leap program. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I certainly found that I only came across uh, Susan in December and she really has highlighted for me this stage now that I'm at and giving me the confidence to do this expansion stage
0: yeah yeah and again you know and it's great that you brought that up because there will be certain people that are right for you where you're at now and then they may be there for a season and then you'll need something different for whatever the next evolution looks like for you so uh, you know as you say connecting with different people to find out who's out there and see who resonates with you there's so many flavors of different uh, consultants and coaches and different business offerings to find the people that you know do resonate with with you to then go okay how do i how do i learn from this this person and uh whether it is just the free resources of podcasts and downloads and things like that or whether there is a paid program and to be reaching out for that support i think is is great to remember that it exists.
1: And don't get hung up on the logo or how it looks (laughs) Uh, because you can spend an awful lot of time refining your logo. I don't have one, um, but building your website and, yes, it's great to have one um, and it's useful for people to get resources. There is a point at which you have to ask yourself, what am I actually doing to reach my clients
0: this week? Yes. So glad that you said that because there's, I mean, a lot of what we've covered today may for some listeners be feeling a bit like, oh, this is very internal work and I just want some hardcore practical tips. What can I actually do? And I, and I think there is, it's an important message that there's, they're both needed and to not get so caught up on the external stuff, the logo, the website, everything being super perfect and before you get started, because as we said earlier, you won't know how your work life, your business, your offering is going to evolve. And so spending thousands of dollars or thousands of hours trying to make your website perfect doesn't actually help you clarify what your business is and it doesn't help anyone else. So get the basics done and then get out there and and look for how can you start to uh, support and offer your services to somebody to be able to reach those people, have them become aware that you exist and potentially work with you. That's a far better investment than um, spending thousands of dollars and hours on trying to get the perfect website, which quite frankly I don't think there even is one. (laughs) They're all like a work in progress forever.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Um, And it's a cover story. It's something that you're trying to feel your professionalism through and what will give you your professionalism is doing the professional
0: work. Yeah, oh, such a good statement and a perfect one for us to end on. Michelle, thank you so much for speaking so openly about your experience and sharing your insights that I think are going to be really beneficial, obviously particularly for anyone who is going through health challenges that are impacting their life and work and also the overlay of people that uh, are in a work situation that just isn't working for them that can use these insights uh, to help feel a little more empowered and look at what they can do so thank you so much for sharing so openly and we'll include those links in the show notes for people to connect with you and find out more
1: thank you so much for the work you do i was so excited to see somebody running this type of podcast and. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be able to share with you and for you to have that beautiful, open-hearted mission to land information and wisdom in the hearts of other women.
0: Mm, That's the goal. Thank you so much, Michelle. So that's it for another episode of the Transit Lounge podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that and got some insights. And if you are a woman who is considering transitioning from a successful career to starting your own business to work for yourself and money is something that is on your mind. It's a factor in whether or not you make this move or not and how you go about making the move. I have created a new free resource designed to help you with that because money is an aspect of our lives that is really influential and it's super important for you as a woman to become more empowered and more confident with your relationship and your results with money. So this resource is a free money quiz and it's available for you. You can get access to that at thetransitlounge.com forward slash Money quiz. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. And in that money quiz, you are going to be introduced to the five money zones that influence how much money you earn and keep, and which one of those money zones is going to be the most impactful for you to work on as you start to transition towards working for yourself so that you can charge and earn what you're worth. So you can go and get that free quiz at transitlounge.com forward slash money quiz. See you next week.